This is James Young with Morgan & Morgan. You're listening to the Whistleblower Attorneys Podcast, where we discuss the history of whistleblowers and how you can uncover and report fraud against the government. Brought to you by whistlebloweratorneys.com. Hello, and welcome to part one of an initial six-part podcast that will discuss in-depth the role of whistleblowers in reporting fraud against the government. In part one, I will focus on the background and history of these laws. Part two will examine the situations that lead someone to take steps to become a whistleblower. In part three, we'll get into more practical aspects of what types of cases are brought under these laws, how they're built, and what the process looks like. Part four will get into further detail by examining the investigative techniques used by private litigants and the government alike to uncover and support fraudulent allegations. Part five will discuss the types of defenses that have evolved over time to get around these allegations. And finally, in part six, we'll cover the eventual resolution of these claims, including topics such as releases, multi-party mediations, and relator share determinations. But before we begin, a brief background on me. My name is James Young, and I will be your host for this guided tour through the world of whistleblowing fraud. I'm an attorney in Jacksonville, Florida, and I practice exclusively in this space. I represent whistleblowers nationwide who report fraud against the government. I'm a partner in the country's largest plaintiff-only, contingency-only law firm, Morgan & Morgan. We have over 300 lawyers, 2,200 support staff, and 35 offices spread throughout nine states. I was previously an in-house attorney for a publicly traded company and more recently spent 10 years at the Florida Attorney General's office, serving as special counsel overseeing multi-state enforcement and pharmaceutical litigation. As you'll hear throughout these podcasts, I'm quite passionate about this practice. I proudly represent my clients. It is my hope that our collective efforts will help take a small bite out of the fraud against taxpayers. So let's begin by first going back in time to understand the origins of the role of the whistleblower and why laws were created with them in mind. For this, we travel back to 7th century Anglo-Saxon England. In the year 656, Withred of Kent issued a decree that a Sabbath breaker would forfeit his heel saying, and the man who informs against him shall have half the fine and the profits arising from the resulting hard labor. Why did they need such a law? Well, the reality then, which is just as true today, is that law enforcement cannot be everywhere to watch everything and must therefore rely upon the people to report or inform violations. This proclamation caused both pious people and those interested in the bounty to report Sabbath breakers. The first true Ketam statutes were enacted by the English Parliament much later in the 14th century. These provisions were intended to assist enforcement of the legislative priorities of the king, especially in areas where, and at times, such legislation undermined local officials' interests. In other words, corruption among the officials would impact the reporting of such offenses. The king enlisted the help of the people to keep an eye on such things. Consider this again. They were the eyes and ears of the king. The 1318 Statute of York, which set uniform prices for consumer goods, was an early English Ketam provision. This act prohibited city and borough officers from selling wine and victuals and provided for forfeiture to the king of any prohibited merchandise. To ensure enforcement, the act provided that one-third of the forfeited merchandise shall be delivered to the party that sued the offender as the king's gift. And in such case, he that will sue for the king shall be received." 
And that is the origin of the term Kitam, which is a shortened version of the full phrase Kitam pro domino reggae quam pro se ipso in hoc parte sequitur, which means he who sues in this matter for the king as well as for himself. This is probably a good time to stop and talk about the term Kitam and how it's pronounced. We say Kitam, some lawyers say Kuitam, other lawyers say Kwaitam. No matter how you say it, the phrase always relates to cases brought on behalf of the government by people who share in the recovery, whistleblowers. More Kitam provisions rewarding informers were enacted over the next two centuries. For example, the 1328 Statute of Northampton penalized the holding of fairs by lords and merchants for longer than the authorized length. This statute provided that every man that will sue for our lord the king shall be received and have the fourth part of that which shall be lost at his suit. Two statutes of laborers enacted in 1349 and 1350 set wage and price controls and provided for informers to seek forfeiture from the violator or from mayors or bailiffs who failed to enforce the regulations. Again, these laws were born out of a need to police the police. In 1360, the English Parliament permitted informers to sue jurors who accepted bribes. Shortly thereafter, another law authorized Kitam suits if a person responsible for procuring and arranging for carriage of provisions for the king's household accepted a bribe. A 1391 statute permitted suits against mayors, sheriffs, and bailiffs who failed to implement rules concerning measurements of grain. These were anti-corruption laws. These laws continued, for the most part, in some form or fashion well into the United States during colonial times. They were embraced by the first U.S. Congress as a way to enforce laws when the new federal government had virtually no enforcement officers. The case of Richard Marvin and Samuel Shaw led the Continental Congress to pass the first whistleblower law in the new United States in 1778. The Continental Congress was moved to act after an incident in 1777 when these two blew the whistle and suffered severe retaliation by Mr. Hopkins, the then commander-in-chief of the Continental Navy. The Congress enacted the protections on July 30, 1778 by unanimous vote, declaring it, quote, the duty of all persons in the service of the United States, as well as other inhabitants thereof, to inform Congress or proper authorities of misconduct, frauds, or misdemeanors committed by officers in the service of these states, which may come to their knowledge. Congress declared that the United States would defend these two whistleblowers against a libel suit filed against them by Hopkins. They resolved that the reasonable expenses of defending the suit be defrayed by the United States and thusly terminated the employment of Hopkins. This is the first instance in the U.S. of anti-retaliation provisions designed to protect whistleblowers. But this law was really designed to protect whistleblowers who uncover fraud by the government, not against the government itself. Such laws are more akin to the actions of modern whistleblowers like Edward Snowden or Julian Assange in WikiLeaks. For purposes of this podcast, when we speak of whistleblower actions, we are referring specifically to those actions which reward informers who inform on fraud against the government. So fast forward past the 6th century in Anglo-Saxon and past colonial America, we find the roots of modern Kitam laws in the American Civil War. Lincoln's law, as it was known, was passed in 1863. Imagine, if you will, the country is torn apart, brother fighting brother, and the future of the nation is at risk. Union supplies were poor and in short supply. Thanks to the unimaginable levels of fraud, it was difficult to move goods across borders. 
cheaply made shoes plagued soldiers' feet. Uniforms of thin and flimsy fabric would literally fall apart in the rain, and they posed no barrier to cold. Guns would misfire or lack the correct triggers and stocks. Shells of gunpowder were found filled with sawdust. Finally, newly ordered horses and mules arrived at the front lines, old and broken, sometimes even blind. At the root of these problems were unscrupulous contractors who took advantage of the situation. They specifically preyed upon the immediate needs and lack of oversight to knowingly supply shoddy materials to the Union. Spurred by early war reports and loud calls from New York Representative Charles Van Wyck, on July 8, 1861, the House approved the creation of the Select Committee on Government Contracts. Coverage of the committee's activities was insatiably detailed as the press was fascinated by reports of the stunning thievery. A New York Times editorial appraised one of the committee's reports, reflecting a library of corrupt readings whose painful and dreadful disclosures will produce a feeling of public indignation which would justify the most summary measures against the knaves whose villainy is here dragged into daylight. The findings offered by the committee's members and the positive, heavy media coverage of its hearings, not to mention the scores of letters sent home by soldiers complaining of their poor supplies, shielded the committee, such that a motion offered by Representative Stevens to curtail its work was soundly defeated. And while earlier moves to pass broadly encompassing anti-fraud legislation did fail, Congress eventually would act on this body's work. On March 2, 1863, the final day of the 37th Congress, they approved the False Claims Act to combat the problem of war profiteering. The bill banned the making of false claims to the government, including forgery, embezzlement, and conspiracy to defraud the government in contracts. The punishment then was harsh. Wrongdoers faced prison time and up to $5,000 in penalties. They could also be hit with a fine double the amount they had stolen, plus $2,000 for each claim, an enormous sum in 1863. Equally important were the unique enforcement mechanisms of the bill. In 1863, there was no real Department of Justice or federal prosecutorial apparatus to deal with criminal networks. Therefore, the legislation included a whistleblower or key TAM provision. This was intended to encourage citizens with knowledge of the fraud to come forward. The principal sponsor of the bill in the Senate, Michigan's Jacob Howard, acknowledged this. He said, quote, I have based the Keytam provision upon the old-fashioned idea of holding out a temptation and setting a rogue to catch a rogue, which is the safest and most expeditious way I have ever discovered of bringing rogues to justice, end quote. At this point, I'm compelled to take a minute to talk about the distinction between what Senator Howard envisioned in his commentary and what modern whistleblowers do. During the Civil War, there were types of fraudulent schemes that were carried out solely in the dark. Thus, the only ones who ever knew about shady dealings were part of the scam itself. Senator Howard was right. He knew it was greed that drove these participants, and greed could be used to expose them. Conversely, today's whistleblowers, under today's False Claims Act, are not typically part of the underlying scheme. Rather, they are witnesses, or at most, bit players that are necessary, but not central. So while the original whistleblowers may have been rogues in large part, there's little connection between then and now when it comes to the conscience and morality of today's whistleblowers. So this law was used almost exclusively for defense contracting purposes during the Civil War, but then it was left to rot and wither until 1942 with the advent of World War II. Unfortunately, 
1942, there were folks who took advantage of a loophole that allowed them to review criminal indictments and then file civil ketam suits without actually witnessing anything at all. These opportunistic parasites all but killed the False Claims Act. Congress amended the act in 1943 to require whistleblowers to provide the government with all evidence in advance of filing in order to give them time to investigate the claims. The government was also given the right to dismiss such claims based upon any prior government knowledge of the fraud. Up until these amendments, successful relators actually received 50% of the government's recovery. The amendments lowered the percentage to 10% and 25%. These amendments lingered as is until 1986, when President Reagan signed the 1986 False Claims Act amendments into law. These were a reaction to the scandal-plagued Cold War 80s, where $400 hammers and $1,000 toilet seats were the norm. The 1986 amendments were crucial to the modern success of the False Claims Act. And between 1987 and 2013, the government recovered $38.9 billion. Of this amount, $27.2 billion, or roughly 70%, came from KETAM cases brought by whistleblowers. In 2014 alone, whistleblowers filed over 700 False Claims Act lawsuits. Now, I'll go into more detail on recent amendments in our fifth podcast, but for now, let's close the loop on the history and basis for these laws. Here's three takeaways. First, originally these laws were created to expand the eyes and ears of government and to watch over or report government corruption. Second, eventually the laws adapted to reward people for exposing fraud against the government. And third, recent amendments broadened the laws and greatly expanded the rights of whistleblowers. Now that we understand the historical basis and modern evolution of the False Claims Act, we can examine the workplace situations that cause someone to become a whistleblower in the first place. For it is whistleblowers who make or break these cases. In the next episode, we'll discuss in detail the actions taken by corporations and reactions taken by whistleblowers that lead to them becoming a whistleblower. Join us in episode two.